Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is it's Gladiator. Uh, the 2000 movie starring Russell Crowe. It's a fantastic movie. It's, it's not rated PG, so, so kids, you can't watch it, but uh, it's, it's pretty violent because like most military movies, there's, a, there's some bloodshed there. Uh, but Russell Crowe does a great job. I think he won an Academy Award for Best Actor out of Gladiator, and, and uh, he plays the, the highly decorated Roman soldier Maximus Decimus Meridius. And uh, there is that scene where he, he says who he is. You know, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, the commander of the armies of the north. And he goes through his whole title. It's just like, I mean, as a, that's a macho movie. And, and I mean, it's just, it's just great. You first meet Maximus. He is on a German battlefield. He is a ruthless, highly skilled soldier. But underneath that rough facade, you actually learn that Maximus is a family man. He's got a wife and a son that, that he loves tremendously. In fact, that's the conflict in the movie is uh, his, his son and his wife are actually crucified by the antagonist, uh, Commodus, the, the, the wannabe emperor in the movie. Not, I mean, it's a 2000 movie, so if you haven't seen it, I'm not offering spoiler alerts or anything here. Um, but uh, the whole movie is about him seeking vengeance for his family's death. And the way the movie explores, I think what's most just intriguing to me about the movie is the way that the movie explores the ruthlessness of Maximus the soldier and how he treats his enemies and, and how he treats those who get in his way. And, and he's, you know, he pulls no punches. But at the same time, the compassion that he shows towards those who are relatively innocent, the, the love and compassion he has towards his, fa- his friends and his family, it's really rewarding to see that, that layer, those, those layers in a character like that. And, and I just, just love the movie. And, and as I think about just, just portrayals of Roman soldiers in the media, I think that's probably just the most recent that we've seen. And we look at the Bible and we encounter these Roman soldiers on a, on a fairly regular basis. In Acts chapter 10, we actually encounter another Roman soldier in the biblical story. And his name's not Maximus. That's a, that's a cool name, Maximus, uh, for, a, for a centurion. Instead, his name is, is Cornelius. And there's no doubt that Cornelius, he has a, a ruthless side. You don't get promotion and, and rank in the Roman military without a particularly fierce attitude toward your enemies. However, when we're introduced to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, it's clear that he's not just the cold-blooded, single-minded killer that you might actually expect. In fact, if you stop and just really stop and think about it, centurions in the Bible are generally painted in a positive light. Again, just think about these Roman soldiers that we meet. In uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus actually commends a centurion, saying that, that, uh, that he's got great faith. In, uh, at the cross after Jesus is crucified. Who is it that first declares that Jesus is the Son of God? It's that centurion standing there who observes the whole thing. And in Acts chapter 27, there's a centurion who defers to the apostle Paul and spared prisoners when they were shipwrecked on Malta. I mean, these, these men are, are, tre- are treated very, uh, as, as, as almost friends in the biblical story. Now, We don't know why they're treated that way in the Bible. I tend to think that it may be because the centurion represents the regular everyday guy who's just doing his job. 
I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he's just doing his job. He's got a commander who tells him what to do, and, and he just does his job without, without a whole lot of question. He just does his job. Certainly there were the bad ones, the, like the ones who were under Pilate's responsibility when Jesus was crucified, those who mocked Jesus, made him wear the crown of thorns, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, we have those, of course. But over and over, we encounter men like Cornelius, who were just trying to figure out how to live faithful lives in the midst of difficult circumstances. Men like Cornelius rejected that, that polytheistic religion, the, the multiple gods of the Roman system. They, they rejected the idea that Caesar was, was Lord. Again, they're just trying to figure out how to, how to do their life in, in what's a difficult season, just looking for the truth. You may think you don't have much in common with a centurion, but in light of that analysis, I would argue that we're more like centurions than we realize. Just men, women, trying to Trying to figure out what it looks like to be faithful in whatever, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whether you're employed for a godless employer who's asking you to do ungodly things or, or whether you're trying to manage kids in a, in a crazy world, just trying to figure out how to be faithful in whatever circumstance in which you find yourself. Last week, we zeroed in on Peter's growth during this, this season of ministry. He's been called away from Jerusalem. We talked about last week the fact that before Peter was ever a mediocre Christian, Peter was a good Jew. And as a good Jew, there, uh, he had certain, uh, certain standards, things that he would not do, things that were not compromise factors for him. And as a good Jew, it would have been a challenge for him to jump into the world of the Gentiles. He just didn't do that. They were unclean. You didn't go into places like that. But we have to remember that the whole point of the book of Acts is about the gospel breaking down the barriers that exist between men by common faith in Jesus. And so all those barriers between Jew and Gentile, all those things are being torn down because of a common faith in Jesus. And so what we have seen over these first 10 chapters is that the gospel is spreading. It's moving through Jerusalem and Judea. It's gotten itself into Samaria, but it is about to be going to the ends of the earth. And we have seen the gospel do tremendous things in Jerusalem and Judea. We've seen the gospel transform Samaria. And now, as we work our way further into the book, we're about to see the gospel break free from these geographic roots and truly begin to transform the world. And you know it was effective. How do you know? Because we are sitting in the middle of Flintstone, Georgia. And I don't see any Jewish people in our congregation this morning. And so as a church that's filled with Gentiles in the middle of Flintstone, Georgia, I would like to think that the gospel is effective in the book of Acts here. It does what it's intended to do. And as we understand the tent of the kingdom of God, that big tent is a remarkable place, and there's always room for more. If you've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 10 today, we'll be looking at the first eight verses, but we'll be referencing several verses throughout the rest of Acts chapter 10. So you're going to want to keep your finger there. But I invite you to stand with me as we read these words from Acts chapter 10. I'll read the first eight verses. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. 
About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come down and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as the memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Cornelius. And as a single character in a story, as in a narrative, we may find him to be less than consequential, but it is his story that allows the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. He is the gateway. So may we recognize his importance, and may we treat these words with the significance that they deserve. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Cornelius was about 30 to 40 miles away from Joppa in a town known as Caesarea, again on the seaside. And as we talked about last week, Peter's moved from Jerusalem. He's moved away from Jerusalem. He is now moving along the coast. He is in an area that is less saturated with Jewish folks, and he's in a very highly Gentile area. He's seen God do miracles through him in this region by the sea. And so here we find ourselves, Cornelius is, is, has got a journey that's been put in front of him. He sends three men on a two-day journey. And while this is going on, Peter is having his own spiritual journey. We talked about this last week. Last week we talked about Peter's vision there at Simon the Tanner's house where he was sitting on the roof and, and that large sheet was being let down and that sheet was filled with all kinds of wonderful things like ham and bacon and sausage and it was a great and glorious thing. And that moment that the vision happened... What was taking place here was not, uh, was not Peter's call to open a barbecue restaurant. What was happening in this moment is that the floodgates were opening up of ministry to the nations. It's consequential. It's incredibly consequential for our lives today. As I said last week, it bears repeating. The sheet may have been filled with all kinds of good stuff to eat, but it was much more about you and me than it was about the food it contained. In that moment, God was doing a remarkable work. He was rendering centuries of prejudice null and void. The gospel would forever be the means to tear down those divisions. And so if we find ourselves divided today between those sort of barriers that we erect, whether it be color or economic status or education status, anything like that, it is the gospel that forever tears those divisions down. Paul would express later in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He says, For him, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Talking about Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
God in his grace through the cross and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has taken this idea that there is Jew and there is Gentile and he has merged them together into this one body that we call the church and now going forward there is one way in which we are to enter into relationship with God and that is through the gospel that's preached through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's going on. This is like an avalanche that's getting ready to break loose. The energy is building. It's been about seven years since Jesus commissioned his disciples. And now we're about to see a profound change in the church. Instead of being a regional offshoot of Judaism, it is about to be transformed into a world-changing faith that crosses every barrier known to man. This is what's about to transpire in our story. And as we see this unfolding, as we work through these chapters, we need to make sure that we understand the ramifications of what is taking place here because it has direct ramifications on who we are today as the people of God. And the first thing we want to make sure that we understand is this. We, being us as people, we find ourselves far more committed to ministry models than God is. We find ourselves far more committed to ministry models, to church models, to how this thing should function than God is. What do I mean? Well, we'll keep looking there down and we'll go down to verse 19. See, what happens is, is Peter is he's perplexed by the vision that he has received. But he finally gets some clarification because God the Holy Spirit speaks to him. And look what it says there in verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Man, it'd be nice if the Lord would speak to us with that level of clarity today, wouldn't it? You know, like, what if the Lord just came right now and said, This afternoon, I want you to go eat at Applebee's for lunch. Now, yes, Lord, I, you know that, I mean, if the Lord would give us that level of clarity, this is how God speaks to Peter. There's three dudes looking for you. Go with them without delay. I mean, that's clear. Lord, are you sure? I mean, can you clarify? What if two guys show up? Now, I didn't say two guys. I said three guys. Three guys are looking for you. I sent them. Go with them. Don't miss that significance. I have sent them. Because why? Going with those three men is the antithesis of what a good Jew would do. Three Gentiles, one of them a Roman soldier. They've had some bad luck with Roman soldiers in the past, right? Roman soldier shows up, spear in hand, Peter, come with me. Negative. Don't think so. Except God the Holy Spirit speaking. They're okay, I sent them. I sent them. Go without delay. Here's the thing. God at this point is no longer worried about who or, or what made a good Jew a good Jew because there's a bigger picture in play now. You see, Peter was no sooner talking to Simon the Tanner about how to cure a slab of bacon than now he has been sent on a journey with strange Gentiles that he's never met. His world has been radically transformed in the course of an afternoon. And now he is going on a journey to preach the gospel in the home of a Roman centurion. 
These are not the actions of a good Jew. Because what's happening is that Peter's view of the world, shaped by his Jewish tradition, is coming crashing down around him. And the picture of ministry, go minister to the, to the Jews, go do ministry to the Jews. The picture of ministry is transforming before his very eyes. I think we all, I think we all have ideas about what church should look like, don't we? I mean, if, if you were given the opportunity to describe the perfect church, you could do it as long as you didn't show up because it wouldn't be perfect anymore. But I think if we were all had that opportunity, we just took out a piece of paper and said, here's what the perfect church would look like. We could name it Goldilocks Baptist Church. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Okay? What would Goldilocks Baptist Church look like? We might say that we want it to be big enough to do all the things that we believe are important, but not so big that it's a mega church because, you know, traffic in the parking lot is not okay. Except for the folks who like mega church, and they'd be okay with that. We want our songs only from the approved playlist. Nothing more, nothing less. We don't really want new songs unless we like the new songs. And then we really want the volume in the room to be at a certain decibel level, unless we want it a little bit more or a little bit less. We always want the sermons to be relevant, not too much yelling, but not too boring. We want topical sermons that are highly exegetical. We want the preacher to dress a certain way. He should be in a suit and tie unless he shouldn't be because we don't want him to feel too stuffy either. And the thermostat should be set to my desired temperature, except for when my temperature is too hot or too cold, and then the thermostat should be changed at my recommendation. Here's the thing. We could all make our list. And you know what would happen if we all made our list and we all had our customization? You know what we would end up with? A bunch of churches with one member each. That's what we would end up with. I'm sure that Peter had a list of preferences that he looked for in the way the church should function. But what's about to happen is that God is about to radically upset the model that the church has been following. Peter, go with them. Go with them, Lord. Me? But I'm, I'm a good Jew, and Lord, they're bad Gentiles, and there's a stinking centurion with them with a spear. Do you not remember what they did to you, Lord? They're not like us, Lord. Go with them, for I have sent them. Here's the thing. God is not opposed to upsetting our models. God is not opposed to upsetting the way we think things ought to be done. And it doesn't matter how committed we are to those models. I can assure you that none of us are as committed to our church ideas as Peter was to his Jewish background. But the thing is, is that God's purpose is higher than our preferences. God's purpose is greater than our desires. And the scripture makes it very clear that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the gospel that saves people. Not our particular model and stripe and shade of doing church. We have a list of all the things that we believe to be important for the church. But do you want to know what God is concerned with? God is concerned with this. Are the nations and our neighbors 
giving glory to God through our gospel witness. The end. Are the nations and our neighbors giving glory to God through our gospel witness? You can build the ideal church, but if your ideal church is more concerned about comfort and preferences and customer satisfaction than it is about seeing the nations and the neighbors encounter the risen Savior, then your picture of the ideal church is completely broken. It's not about us. It's not a country club for Christians. It's a hospital for sinners. And God is far less concerned with those ministry models than we are. So what happens next? Peter takes the journey to Cornelius' home. Two days, he goes on an overnight camp out with <laughs> two Gentile slaves and a Roman centurion. He takes six brothers with him, we're told over in Acts chapter 11, because seven Jews equal, a, I mean, that, that they've got enough witnesses to prove something to be true. He arrives at Cornelius, and I love the fact Cornelius is so overwhelmed when he meets Peter because Cornelius, he doesn't, he doesn't know. He's a, he's, he's a God-fearer. He's been trying to find the truth, but he didn't know. He just knows that this voice told him to go get Peter. And we're told in Acts chapter 10, verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. I bet that happened quickly. Don't worship me. You stand up. Because I'm just a man like you are. And Peter looks around, and he sees at the home of this well-to-do Roman centurion is filled. It's filled with family and friends and people that Cornelius thought highly of. And suddenly Peter finds himself a good Jew surrounded by people 72 hours before he would have never dreamed himself surrounded by. He's in a house full of Gentiles, and the first line of his sermon is earth-shattering. If you are an underliner, if you're a memorizer, if you are somebody who wants to make notes and draw pictures in the margin of your Bible, whatever you do to make this stand out, make sure that Acts chapter 10 verse 34 stands out. And it says this, So Peter opened his mouth and said in this room full of Gentiles, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Underline this, highlight this, make a big deal about this, shout it to the rooftops, but make sure you don't shout it out loud without shouting it on the inside first. God shows no partiality. Who, who gets in the tent? Who gets to sit on the paper if we were talking about our kids' time? Who gets in the tent? Here's the thing. Nationality doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. At the same time, it's not universalism. Not everybody gets in. There is a tent, but there is a door to the tent. And Peter points to the door in the next verse. He says in verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. 
Who gets in? Anybody that wants to, through the Lord Jesus Christ. God shows no partiality, and he has provided a clear way for people to join the kingdom. Go back to last week. Remember the sheet that contained all the unclean animals. All the unclean animals represent all the people in the world that we deem to be beyond God's saving grace due to our own biases. But understand this, the word of God could not be clearer. God shows no partiality. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. The tent is big enough for anyone who wants in the door. Listen to how Peter concludes his sermon. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 10. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, talking about Jesus, to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the pathway. It's not an open door, but it is an open invitation. It's not open to anybody just believing whatever they want to believe, but the invitation to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins is extended to anyone. Do we believe that today, that anyone who receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus is invited? Regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of language, they're invited through Jesus The doorway is guarded by faith in Jesus, but the invitation is extended through the gospel to anyone who has ever heard the gospel proclaimed. It is an open invitation to be part of the kingdom of God. What if Peter had said no? Who is it? We're here for Peter. Cornelius, the centurion, our master, has sent us. He wants you to come and visit him in his home in Caesarea. Go away! But we were told that you would be willing to come with us. No, I'm not going. You're Gentiles. I'm not going anywhere with you. Go away! Look what happened in the meantime. It's not like... It's not like Cornelius had Life 360 on him or, or, or Find My Friends, right? It's not like he had, them, he had their cell phone tracking and he was seeing where they were in their journey like we do today. Like, oh, they're just now leaving the store. They'll be home in 10 minutes. You know, it's not, it's not like that was going on. Cornelius sent his three messengers. He knew it was a two-day journey there, two-day journey back. About four days, five days, he knew that they would be back as long as they didn't encounter any trouble. And so in that meantime, he went and gathered everyone, brought all his friends, all his family. You guys want to be here for this. You won't believe what's been happening as I've been dealing with with God about this. You won't believe what I've heard, what I've been told. You guys want to be here. When this man shows up, you want to hear what he's got to say. What if those men had came back with this message? Master Cornelius, Peter refused to come because he said we're Gentiles.
Mahatma Gandhi shares in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels, and he seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity because it seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system in India that divided the people of the nation. One Sunday, Gandhi attended church services, and he decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. <laughs> Gandhi, an Indian man, comes in to talk to the pastor about how to get saved. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to seat him, suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. Gandhi left, never came back. He said to himself, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Look at what happens next. All of this story points to a seminal truth. When it comes to enlarging the tent, when it comes to growing the kingdom of God, we have to remember this. There is but one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, we see this. While Peter was still saying these things, he was still preaching his sermon. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter no more than had finished his sermon than this miraculous work of salvation had taken place. The organ barely got the first notes out of just as I am and the altar was already full of people ready to receive Jesus. The Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius' house just like it did back in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, just like it did there in Samaria. And we don't know how many people were in the house. No idea. But what we do know is that two miracles happened that day. The first miracle was the fact that Cornelius and his household and his friends met the Lord Jesus Christ that day. And the miracle of salvation, that should never be lost on any of us. Whenever somebody gives their life to Christ, we understand what happens to them. They are justified in an instant. They are declared clean and holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a remarkable miracle that transpires, and it should never be minimized, and the significance of it should never be lost on us. That day, Cornelius, his entire household, all of his friends, they met the Lord Jesus Christ that day. And that day, seven Jewish men found themselves amazed that God loves Gentiles too. And all the Gentiles in the house say, <laughs> still true today, there's lots of different uniforms in the realm of Christendom. 
Lots of different stripes and shades. But anyone who claims Jesus Christ is Lord, are, we're united by that same faith in Jesus. It's not a warm feeling. It's not some fuzzy notion of sentimentality. It is the fact that we understand that we are saved from our sin through the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It is the faith that Jesus rose again, conquering death. It is the trust that he is returning again to deliver us to ultimate salvation. We all share that same faith. That is the gospel, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior for anyone who's in sin. That unites us. We're told that we're united by the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. He is above all other rulers. His name is above every other name. We submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that same baptism as Paul refers to in Ephesians, not talking about baptism in the water, but baptism of the Spirit by which we're grafted into Christ when we first believe. All of us, from Cornelius to Augustine to Spurgeon to you to me, we're all bound together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Last week, I asked us to consider who we excluded from that sheet. Who, who is it that doesn't fall into our, our realm of acceptability? But today, I want us to dive just a little bit deeper with two very simple questions. And these questions are based on the characteristic of the Lord that we see here in Acts chapter 10. First question is this. What methods... Are we willing to change or embrace for the sake of the kingdom of God? Remember this, the gospel is non-negotiable. The gospel is the power of God for salvation from now until eternity. That's non-negotiable. The gospel has to be proclaimed. People have to hear. They can't hear without it being preached. And it's preached from the pulpit. It's preached from our testimony. It's preached in our Sunday school classes. It's preached in our kids' ministry. It's preached with our student ministries. The gospel has to be proclaimed in order for people to be saved. The gospel is non-negotiable. But all the tools we use to convey it are just that. They are tools. We talked about last week the rapid change that's about to take place in our community over the next few years. And we have to understand this. Reaching those folks are going to necessarily change things. Some things we have to change just structurally. We have to just change the way things flow and work in our church and the way we do outreach and those sort of things. That's natural, but what about other things? Are we willing to make changes for the sake of the kingdom of God? And not just begrudgingly, but are we willing to celebrate changes in order to reach the lost the second one's a little bit harder we all know the right answer to the first one but the second one's a little bit harder and again it it dives deep into what peter has declared that god shows no partiality well here's the question who do we show partiality to we know who god shows partiality to right no one 
No one. We're all on equal footing. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We're all children of a Heavenly Father. We're all in that same boat. So there's no partiality there. God shows no partiality to no one. God doesn't prefer this race over that race. God doesn't prefer this gender to that gender. There's only two. God doesn't prefer things like that. There's no partiality in that. Men, women, children, adults, black, white, brown, yellow, red, doesn't matter. We learned that as a kid. Red and yellow, black, brown, white, all are precious in his sight. Who do we, though, show partiality to? Because we don't have that same level of love that that God has. It's harder for us to not show partiality. But in spite of it being difficult, we still have to be aware of it. Perhaps if we searched our hearts today, we might find that we're perhaps partial to those who have more money or we're partial to those who have more education or we're partial to those who are more popular. We might find that we're more partial to those who look like us. But if we're going to love like Jesus loves, then we, we have to embrace the spirit of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who so ever who whosoever does it matter what color nope matter how much money nope matter what kind of house they live in nope matter what kind of car they drive nope matter what their zip code is nope matter what their zip code was nope matter if they wear orange on saturday instead of red nope doesn't matter because god shows no partiality whosoever is a big word and it's a word that touches each and every single one of us because if you're in christ today guess what you were once a whosoever and as a former whosoever who is now a child of the king it's our responsibility to make sure that all the other whosoevers know about a savior who loves them god has given us a great big tent with lots of room to grow let's do our part to make sure that everyone knows the invitation would you pray me please God, thank you that your word confronts us and challenges us and calls us to account for our our preferences. It challenges us in our partiality, and it calls us into faithfulness to you. Lord, each and every one of us who are in Christ, at some point in time in our life, we were in that whosoever. We were outside of the kingdom, but we were a whosoever that the gospel was available to, and those who are in Christ today, we've been welcomed into a new family. We've been brought under a new, uh, a new father. We're children of a heavenly king. We've been adopted with all the rights and privileges therein. But Lord, maybe there's some in this room today who, who have yet to trust Christ as their Savior. They've yet to embrace the gift that's been extended to them. And they might be on the outside of the tent, but they're still looking in trying to decide whether they want to go through the door that is guarded by faith in Jesus. And so today I pray that they would recognize their sin and recognize how great a love you have for them 
and how much you want them in the family. Whosoever. Whosoever. Lord, at the same time, we as a church look around our community and we can't help but recognize that it's transforming. There are new residents, new homes, new communities that are, that are coming in. And our community is being transformed in some ways good, some ways bad. But regardless of how we feel about developments and growth and those sort of things, God, the, the, our commission as your people hasn't changed. We're still to go to the nations as well as go across the street. And so whether across the street is a run-down old house with somebody that's got no money, no, no fame, no fortune, or whether across the street is a million-dollar home with a famous, popular, powerful person, you show no preference. Whether our neighbor is a new apartment complex that's filled with people that we are suspect of, or whether it's a new housing development, or whatever it may be, you show no partiality. You want all to have faith and trust in Jesus. And as your messengers, would we be faithful to deliver? So God, search our hearts and show us where our partiality lies that we might be faithful to you in all things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.